0: Let's uh, let's pray um, for Paris. Then just horrifying what's happening there, and uh, let's lift up, lift up Paris, Lord. Um, we grieve with uh, those in Paris, the many, many, many who have lost loved ones in these recent terror attacks. Lord, we pray that such uh, actions would cease. Stop. We pray for protection, Lord, we pray for the French people to have uh, great wisdom, to know how to respond in a way that um, fosters peace and reconciliation and righteousness. Lord, I pray for your, for your church in France, for our Christian brothers and sisters, give them gr- uh, vision from the Holy Spirit to know how to lead the way. Pray this in, in uh, your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So today, uh, we are concluding this world religion series. Don't cheer. Uh, for some, I think you're probably like, finally, let's get back talking about Jesus. We're going to talk about Jesus today. Preach the Bible. But uh, just a uh, reminder, we study, we've been studying world religions uh, for two reasons. Number one, the data suggests that Christians who are aware of what other people believe are more inclined to share what they believe. And so it, it actually bolsters our confidence and in our, in our, in our conviction in our own faith, and so we're uh, more confident to share uh, about Jesus. And secondly, Christ, uh, I believe Christ shines brighter in our hearts and minds when compared against the con- competition. So I hope that one of the things, uh, certainly for me, is that my own appreciation What I have in Jesus has only gone up as I've uh, as I've studied what is available elsewhere. But today we're wrapping it up. Uh, Just a reminder: we've we've studied uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, Judaism, Islam, and uh, last week skepticism. And so today we're wrapping it all up with, I think, the most important question of all: Uh, What does God think about other religions? What does God think about other religions? So we're going to examine this question, grapple with this question, uh, primarily through Paul's sermon to the intellectuals in Athens, found in Acts chapter 17. So if you would, open your Bibles, make a beeline to Acts chapter 17. Here's the setting. Paul the apostle, traveling around the then-known world, preaching the good news, announcing that uh, God left heaven in the person of Jesus Christ, and he willingly went to the cross, and he died to pay the penalty for our sins. But then, three days later, he burst forth from the grave, and he ascended into into heaven where he sits right now on the right hand uh, of the Father, and someday he will return to take back with him to heaven all who in this life repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus. God has sent a Savior, good news. So he's in Athens, the capital of Greece. He's preaching this in the marketplace, and word of his teaching comes to the Areopagus. The Areopagus, these are the intellectual elites in Athens. In fact, many of them, all they did was get together and talk about ideas. So hey, there's this new idea being talked about, and so they invite Paul to come share. They're curious people. They want to be in the know. And so Paul has an opportunity to preach to the Areopagus. And his sermon is recorded for us in Acts chapter 17. I want to pick up about halfway through his sermon. He's been talking about who God is and who we are as uh, image bearers of God. Verse 29, Acts 17. Being then God's offspring... from the dead. In these few verses, Paul tells us a lot about God's attitude toward other religions. First thing I want to point out here is that uh, Paul notes that non-Christian religions ultimately uh, get it wrong at some point. At some critical point, all other religions inaccurately describe reality. Note his words. We ought not to think that way. He's correcting uh, the Athenian intellectuals because they're idolaters. Athens is filled with idols. And, And Paul's saying, you know what? The way you think about the divine is incorrect. You shouldn't think that way. Now, human religions are the best of humankind's thinking. Humans have struggled to explain reality, and the world religions reflect the best of our thinking. And there's a lot within uh, these religions that's true. All truth is God's truth, and and uh, people have tapped into much of it. There's a reason uh, that the morality of the world's great religions is often very similar. So there's a lot of nobility and a lot of truth in these world religions, and yet, Always there's some inaccuracies at critical, critical points. So let me just remind us, Hinduism. Hinduism says there are many, many, many gods. But the reality is there is one God. Hinduism says uh, we get an infinite number of lives to live and to get it right. But the reality is it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. We only get one life. Then there's Buddhism. Buddhism Buddhism says human life is something to despise, something that, to snuff out because it's, it's miserable. And yet the reality is human life is, uh, is inef, inestimably um, precious because we're creating the image of God. In fact, human life is so valuable that God said, I, am, I deem it right to send my only begotten son to die so that people could live. Confucianism. Confucianism says abundant life is found in proper relationship with other people. But that, and that's good, but that's only partly correct because abundant life must also include uh, a relationship with one's creator. There's Taoism. Taoism says the abundant life is found in uh, living in harmony with the Tao, an impersonal force in the universe. And yet we know that God is personal. And abundant life comes through a personal relationship with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Judaism says uh, the Messiah has not yet come, and so they're waiting. But the reality is the Messiah has come, and they're acting as if we... Uh, there's no peace when there, already has, when there already is peace. Islam. First off, Allah is not the God of the Bible. Their characters are totally different. So they got that wrong. But Islam says humans rise and fall based on their own uh, goodness. And yet the reality is, if we have to stand before God based on our own merits, we're all sunk. We are a 100% dependent upon the grace of God. Of God. And then there's skepticism. Who say. Uh, either there absolutely is no God. Or at least I'm going to live like there is no God. And the Bible says. It's the fool who says in his heart. There is no God. Living as if there is no God. Does not take you good places. So. Although the, the religions. Of the non-Christian religions of the world. Get a lot right. There's always some critical component. That they get completely wrong, which is why we Christians refer to other religions as false religions because at some critical point, their view of reality is false. So that's Paul's first point. The second thing I see Paul pointing out here is that um, God no longer overlooks false worship. God no longer overlooks false worship. Look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now. What are the times of ignorance? The times of ignorance are the pre-Christ era. Before God revealed himself in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. Before the the gospel went forth. Before God uh, revealed to humans his ultimate plan for them. Before he sent the Savior. Before that is labeled by the Bible the the times of ignorance. But Paul's point is we don't live in the times of ignorance. We live in the Christian era. We live in the era where the gospel has gone forth. The times of ignorance God overlooked. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that God considered false worship, idol worship, acceptable or legitimate. It means he didn't respond to false worship with the judgment it deserves. He was merciful. So, for example, imagine somebody uh, does something offensive to you, says something to you, does something to you, and you choose to overlook it. Does the fact that you've overlooked the offense make it accept okay? No. What they did was still wrong. What they did was still hurtful. What they did was still inappropriate. It was still offensive. You just happened to to be merciful and choose to not respond to that offense with the the response it deserved. And that's what Paul's saying. Yes, uh, even during the times of ignorance, false worship was offensive to God, But in his mercy, he chose to overlook it. He chose not to judge it with the judgment it deserves. But Paul's whole point, and here's Paul's whole point is we no longer live in the times of ignorance. God no longer overlooks false worship. Now, God commands everyone all over the world to repent. So here's the third point I see. Paul is saying God commands all people to become Christians. I'll say that again. In our pluralistic society, this is a shocking claim. To many, it's an offensive claim. God commands all people on planet Earth to become Christians. That's what I see Paul saying here. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Christianity is not just a Western religion. It is meant to be a world religion. God commands. He doesn't just invite. He doesn't just desire. He commands it. It is the will of God that every man, woman, boy, girl on planet Earth be a follower of Jesus Christ. That is God's command. Final point I see him making is that non Christians will ultimately have to stand before God on their own merits. Verse 31 God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. Paul is uh, informing or reminding uh, the Areopagus that there is a day of judgment coming when the righteous judge will hold humans accountable for what they've done. The Apostle Paul puts it this way to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. God who cares even about the motivations behind our actions, who knows what happens in secret as well as as in public. That God who knows every part of us, everything we've ever, ever thought and done and the motivations behind it, he will judge that someday. That's what Paul's telling these Athenians. And so here's the question. How will you fare? How will I fare on judgment day? That's what Paul is asking these these intellectuals of Athens to consider. How are you going to fare on judgment day? And the Bible is not ambiguous about that. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. That includes me and that includes you. On judgment day, your sins will be exposed. You will be found guilty by the righteous judge. And what's the penalty? Romans six twenty three, for the wages of sin is death. The Bible's clear. On judgment day, every human will be found guilty. And, they, and the, 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 the penalty of that is death. They will be condemned to death. And it's good for us sometimes to just sit in that <laughs> a bit. because our mind and heart starts to say, whoa, 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 is there any way out? Is there a way of escape? This is, a, this is a dire forecast of my future. And that's why Paul is in Athens. And that's why Clearwater Church exists, because we've got good news to proclaim. The good news is, There is a way out. There is a Savior. There is salvation that is possible. John chapter 3, verse 16. Most famous verse in the whole Bible for good reason. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We deserve to perish. Apart from Christ, we will perish. But we don't have to perish because God has sent a Savior, Jesus Christ. Glorious, glorious news. This is why Christmas is so awesome. This is why we should go take cookies, knock on doors, and tell people, come celebrate with us the coming of the Savior of the world. Apart from him, wow, we're doomed. John 3. 336 whoever believes in the son has eternal life what a promise whoever believes in the son has eternal life but what if you what if you hear the gospel what if you stare the savior in the eyes look him over and then say no thank you John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Glory. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Why does it say condemned already? What it's saying is, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't receive God's Savior then you're going to face judgment on your own, standing on your own merits, and it will be condemnation. That's what God has said. But it doesn't have to be that way. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's that's what's available to you. Salvation. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Here is God's word on the matter. It's this simple. God in heaven looked down upon us and he saw our desperate state. They have all sinned. My righteous judgment upon them is death. And then God said, but I have mercy upon them. I don't want that for them. I want them to live. I will come down out of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ, and I will die in their place. I'll take the punishment for their sins upon myself so that they have a way of escape, so that they can live. The Bible says, by his stripes we are healed. Why did Jesus hang upon the cross? It was not his, he wasn't failing. It wasn't just to, uh, to have a, show us a good example of enduring suffering. He went to the cross for a purpose. So that you and I wouldn't have to die. He died that we might live. God considers Jesus a sufficient savior. God does not feel the need to provide multiple saviors to humanity. His only begotten Son is adequate, sufficient. The death of Christ is sufficient payment for the sins of the whole world. God has provided a way of escape, He has provided, He has sent a a Savior. But if humans look at Jesus and then say, No, thank you, they're on their own. And God has given to humans a choice you may stand on your own or you may have Christ as your advocate standing beside you at judgment day. In fact, Jesus is actually your judge. And then he's like, hey, I already died for that. I paid the penalty penalty for that. You're good. That's the choice. God has provided one savior This is why why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am. No man comes to the Father except by me. There is no other Savior. We hear today, some people think that what God cares about is sincerity, and he doesn't care about what religion you practice, just as long as you're sincere and he sees your sincerity and he will respond to your sincerity. That is not biblical at all. It's not about your sincerity. It's about whether or not the blood of Jesus covers your sins. And the Bible makes it very clear how that happens. Repent of your unbelief and turn to Jesus. Embrace Jesus as your Savior. And if you do that, well, then you are in Christ and you will be saved. That's a promise of God. The question about what about the person who has not yet heard the gospel What about those who are too young to understand or those who have uh, mental deficiencies and can't understand? I'm not talking about those people. Those are legitimate legitimate questions. I'm talking about the the person who understands, hears the gospel, looks Jesus in the the face and says, no, thank you, I'd like to try something else. The Bible gives absolutely no uh, hope for those people. We certainly can't proclaim any hope. He who does not believe stands condemned already. So what we do here at Clearwater Church is important. We, we are appealing. The Bible says that we appeal on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. You do that out in, uh, in your family circles, in your friendship circles, at your workplace circles. Uh, you, you are an ambassador of God, inviting people to be reconciled to God through faith in His Son Jesus Christ. It's a it's a wonderful privilege that we have, a, a, a privilege and a responsibility. So I want to invite Rob and the worship team back. We're gonna um, sing "Behold Our God." It's been our theme song for this series. And then we're going to take communion, and I want to just tell you, I'm going to give you an opportunity right before we take communion to give your life to Jesus. If you're not a Christian and you want to become a Christian today, you can. It's just a decision you can make, and I'm going to challenge you to do that and then invite you to uh, take communion uh, as your first act of faith. Let me pray. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God, we thank you that you care enough about us that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. Thank you for preserving truth in your word. And Jesus, ultimately, we thank you that you uh, were willing to leave heaven and go to the cross, endure the suffering of the cross for our sake. By your stripes, we are healed. Lord, Spirit of the living God, I pray that if there's anyone here that does not know Jesus... That, that, that you would just draw them powerfully. May you open their eyes to see that uh, faith in Christ is their only hope of salvation, that they would respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.